This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in the middle of a series called Rise in the Storm. And I just wanted to make you aware of something that you may not know. In just a few weeks, we have a very special Sunday, one of the biggest Sundays of the entire year. It's called Easter. It's where we gather together as believers and followers of Jesus, and we celebrate the fact that our God is no longer dead. He is no longer defeated, that he was crucified to take on the burden of our sin, but through the power of God, he was resurrected in three days. And so we celebrate that at Easter. It's one of the largest attending Sundays of the year in most church calendars, no different here. And so we like to capitalize on that and help you to invite people to come to church and be here with you. So my question to you is, who are you inviting to Easter? Who's on the radar that you know is not plugged into a life-giving church? They're not involved actively in any kind of church family. They need that hope. They need that. And I I just want to remind you of something that's important. Um, If you've been around before, you've heard me say this. Most of you will go and invite somebody one time and say, hey, would you come to church with me? And they'll say yes, but then they, they politely bow out. And I think that many of us think after a while we go, well, they don't really want to come. But here's the truth. It takes about between 7 and 10 invitations for the average person to respond and come to church with you. All right? Now, that it's not always you, like, handing them an invite card or calling them. But it, it, it is them seeing you say, hey, on Facebook, would you come with me? Hey, you mail them a card. You di- and because realistically, it takes about five times before they even know that you're serious about it and you love them and that you want something good for them. All right? So don't give up. Don't give up. We, we try to make it easier for you at Easter to invite people. And the way that we do this is we, we create some invite cards that you have in your worship guide today. We put an image on Facebook. It's this one right here that says, Rise With Me. All right? That image is going to be on Facebook this afternoon. You can share that. And we like to use hashtags at Easter because on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, if you use a hashtag, you can click on that and see who else posted it. And what's neat is when you invite your friends, they can click on that and see who else posted that along with them, right? So they can go, oh, so-and-so goes there, so-and-so goes there. So the hashtags that we use are Rise With Me this year, all right, and Easter at Vortex. And if you have no idea what to even put on there, here's an example of how we would uh, kind of leverage an invitation on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Would you rise with me this Easter at Vortex? We have services at 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., and this is important right now. Let me know, and I'll sit with you, because a good invitation is to say, y'all come, but a better invitation is to say, if you come, I will sit with you, I will meet you out in the parking lot and guide you through the whole experience, okay? So we want to give good invitations. We want to give those kind of invitations that make it easy and accessible for our friends that don't have that life-giving church family to be a part of our celebrations. And here's one thing that I told you last year, and I just want to remind you of this because of how we are and where we are as a church. Isn't it a good thing where we're starting to have to worry about how many seats we have to put people in? 
Isn't that an awesome thing? And so we're going to most likely have more visitors at the 1030 service. If you have somebody that's coming, that's fine. Meet them at the 1030. But if you don't have somebody coming, please come to the 9 o'clock. All right? Because that will open up some room in the turn 30. And I said this last year. I'll say it again. If it offends you that I asked you to come to the 9 o'clock, then maybe the best thing you could do is just not come to church and free up a seat for somebody else to come and get saved. All right? All right, that's just how, that's how important it is. We believe that that is a big day. So let's review kind of where we started last week. Last week we started with this simple truth that we're all in life going to face storms. Some of you are in storms right now. Some of you are coming out of storms. And if you're not in storms or not coming out of storms, just get ready. You're about to go in one, okay? Because we're all going to face storms. And when we face storms, they knock us down. Our storms are going to knock us down. But look at what the Bible says in Proverbs twenty four sixteen: The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. You've heard this said before, that the righteous may fall seven times, but they will rise eight. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. So we started asking the question, what's different between the one and the other? What's different between the person who falls down and gets up and the person who falls down and disaster hits them? What's the difference? Because we want to be the person that rises, even in the midst of the storms. And there are storms that come because of stuff that we've done. There are storms that come because of stuff that other people have done. There are storms that just come because we're a part of a broken and messed up world. That it's been shattered and corrupted by sin. So when you're lying face down in the mud, are you going to rise or are you going to run? Are you going to rise Or are you going to run? This week I want to look at Exodus 2 and 3. And a character that you may be familiar with from the Bible. A story that I think is profound and really attaches to what we're talking about today. His name is Moses. Now Moses is miraculously saved as a baby. And he gets this wonderful privilege that no other Hebrew is going to get. Because he is a Hebrew. Hebrews at this point in in their history are slaves in Egypt. Being used as a massive population to build their kingdom. But Moses is miraculously saved and adopted by a princess in the royal family. He gets to grow up in Pharaoh's house. But as an adult, as a young man, he learns that he is a Hebrew, not an Egyptian, as he kind of thought he might have been. And one day, when he is out walking around and observing the world that he lives in, he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave. And for the first time, even though he has probably seen this happen before, now that he knows he's a Hebrew, for the first time he is connected to the story that's there. He's emotionally invested in this group of people that are being abused and belittled and used. And he reacts in anger and murders the slave master in cold blood. And he looks around after the Hebrew slave escapes. And he thinks nobody has saw him. But the next day when he's out walking around, a couple of Hebrews get scared of him. You're the one that killed the Egyptian. And before long, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself, finds out about it. And we find out what happens after the king finds out in Exodus 2.15. When Pharaoh heard what had happened, he tried to kill 
Moses. Think about the tragedy that lies in that statement. Moses, who grew up in the house of Pharaoh, who had been given all the privilege and access of someone who lived in that family. Now the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is trying to kill him. But what did Moses do? Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses fell, facing the decision to rise or to run, Moses is going to run. And here's the truth. Many of our stories in the midst of our failures are going to identify with Moses. Instead of rising in our storms, we often try to run from them. And we're going to see inside the story of Moses today some keys to help us not run, but rise. You see, as Moses flees, he meets a young woman, gets married, and in verse 23 of Exodus chapter 2, the Bible says that years passed, not days, not weeks, years. Where Moses had ran from his potential, he had ran from what we're going to find out is his calling, and years later, Moses is still there. And some of you, some of you years ago, ran from something that you know God wanted you to do. Some of us today are still running. And we may identify with whom Moses said he was. In Exodus 2, verse 22, Moses said, I am a sojourner in a foreign country. After he has been married, he has lived years with this woman. He is now a part of their family. He's working a job as a shepherd. He is fully plugged in and integrated into this community. The story that he's telling about himself is, I'm a refugee. I don't belong here. I don't belong anywhere. I'm a sojourner, someone who is bound for the rest of my life never to know what home feels like. And I'm trapped in a foreign country. And Exodus chapter 2 ends with this really interesting moment where the Bible records God hearing the prayers of his people in Exodus 2.23, the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery and they cried out for help and let their cry rise up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with them. You see, God, years before this moment, had made a covenant with Abraham that out of your children, I am going to bless the whole earth. I'm going to bless the whole earth. Out of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Abraham, you have no kids. I'm going to give you kids. And then years later, we're going to bless the whole earth through you. God hears the groaning of the Hebrew slaves and remembers the covenant. You see, right there in that moment, that tension of the story that Moses is telling about himself, we find the first thing that we must do if we're going to rise in the storm. Last week, I gave you kind of the overarching principles to what we must do if we're going to rise in the storm. And the first thing I told you was that we need to own our stories. 
We need to take ownership of the stories that our, our lives are telling. We need to stop blaming other people. We need to stop saying that we're a victim. We need to say that right now I believe God can take and own my story, give me the capacity to rise, and that God can do more in this moment than he could ever do outside of it. So today what I want to do is help you understand what it means to own our story. The first thing, this is in your notes, to rise in the storm, we must rewrite the first draft of the story that we're telling about ourselves and our situations. We must rewrite the first draft of the story we are telling about ourselves and our situations. Because here's the problem. Often we are telling a story about ourselves, just like Moses, and about our situation that is not true. And we're completely and totally bought into it. It's informing the way that we live, and we're living in a lie. We have to learn to rewrite that first draft. I love what Brene Brown, a researcher who deals with this kind of a moment, did a a phenomenal research project on this, said, in the absence of data, we will make up stories. When there is no data to construct the story, our minds will work to create a story. You ever been there? I like to call it what, what she calls it with her kids, the stormy first draft. You ever got to work? This happened to me one time. You got to work late, and I walked in about five or ten minutes late. If you know me, that's fairly common. All right, so five to ten minutes late. And I walked in, and I passed my boss, and my boss looked at me, shook her head, and walked away. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get fired today. I'm going to get fired. There's no way in the world this it's all over with. She knows it's habitual. She's probably been documenting it for months. You know, I later found out that my zipper was open. <laughs> you know, in the absence of data, Our minds will work to create stories. And here's why. I want you to see some research today. This comes from Robert Burton. He's a neurologist. Our brains search for patterns. The brain itself recognizes the beginning, middle, and end pattern of a story. And when there is inadequate information is present, it will search to create connections. We we know what a story looks like, and the brain is working overtime to try to understand our situations. So what happens? Oh, I'm late again. She saw me. I'm busted. I'm gone. That's the story that we're telling ourselves in the first draft. But see, it gets even worse than that. I'm just going to be vulnerable, okay? I got in a big fight with my wife this week, all right? I know none of y'all ever get in fights with your wives, but... What happened was she, she took time, and this is, so, this is why my wife is so beautiful and wonderful. She took time to make a very special gift for one of her friends that was going through a bad time. And she actually uh, went to and started working on it after our kids had went to bed. And, 
And, and she ran out of something that she needed, and so she needed to run to the store, and she just let me know, hey, I'm going to run out to the store. And when she told me that, this thing went in my mind. This is what I started saying. You've never went out to the store after the kids went to bed to go get something for me. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Y'all see where this is going, right? You must, you must be much more concerned about her than you are about me. As a matter of fact, that's what I see. Now, now that I think about it, I can see the pattern. I see it. I remember that time that you did this and the time that you did this and the time that you did this. As a matter of fact, all the evidence points to the fact that you are. How many times have you been there? In a book called The Storytelling Animal about how the heart of a human is all bent towards story. Jonathan Gottschall quoted a research uh, project called the Sox Story. This is so interesting. They brought in a group of, of shoppers that they found in the mall. And they brought them into a room that had no kind of stimulus in the room. Seven pairs of socks laid out on the table. They said, we just want you to pick one pair of socks. We'll leave you in here until you make your decision. And he said, every single time, without fault, when they went in, people could give them the story why they liked the stock, the sock that they picked out. I, I like this pair of socks because the texture on it is so much higher quality than others. I like this one because the, the color is richer. I like this one because I think the craftsmanship is exceptional compared to the rest. But you want to know what's interesting? They were all the same. They were all the same. See, what Robert Burton, the neurologist that we just quoted, calls them is half stories. And that in the half story, our brain literally rewards us with dopamine for creating a connection. We actually get that aha moment. Y'all ever have that? Aha! You don't love me as much as you love your friend. I see how it is. You know that, right? It happens. So what we must do, number two, we must expose the half stories through confession. Now, right now, I'm about to give you some exceptional tools to help you deal with this because this is something that every one of us deals with. We have half the story and we start writing the end of the story through fear or insecurity or doubt or selfishness. So how do we expose the half stories? You see, James says that if we'll confess, we can be healed. Do y'all know that? If we'll confess our sins to each other, we can be healed. But so many of us don't want to do that, do we? We don't like to say this, but let me give you some tools today. The first thing that I want you to know is this. Learn to say these words. The story I'm telling myself is. The story I'm telling myself is. So after having an unbelievably stupid fight with my wife, I sat down and typed out a text and said, the story I'm telling myself is that you love your friends more than you love me. And when I write it out, I see how stupid that is. (laughs) Because I know that's not true. The story I'm telling myself is is that you will sacrifice for them in ways that you won't for me. 
And I know that's not true. But that's the story I'm telling myself. See, we have to own our stories. And I would give you the second tool. The second tool is there, is to write down the story. As a matter of fact, I would suggest if you have an iPhone or an Android, you open up and make a note and just call it the first draft. All right? And when something happens like this, write it down and look at it. Journal it. Because I promise you, when you sit there and look at, my husband doesn't love me the way he loves, you're going to go, I, I know that's not true. Or my boss values my coworker more than, you, you know what, when, when I read those words, I see how selfish that is. The story I'm telling myself is, and then write it down. We must learn to expose those half stories because, number three, we need to let God shape how we understand our story. We need to allow God to shape how we understand our story. See, here's the thing. The details of your story do not have to change for your understanding of your story to change. The details do not have to change for your understanding of your story to change. I heard a great story this week. I'm going to tell it to you. It's about Bubba and Joe Boy. They decided that they'd take their family fishing. They went up to Maine, and they got a, got a boat, and they went out to go fish for lobsters, right? They didn't really know what they were doing. They were out in the middle of the ocean, and all of a sudden, a great storm came up. A massive storm. The waves got really big. The boat capsized. Bubba was able to swim to shore, but Joe Boy didn't make it. So Bubba had to go home and explain to his family what had happened. And he walked in the front door, and their sister Annabelle was sitting there. He said, Annabelle, I got some bad news. I got some good news. And I got some gooder news. You tell me what you want first. And she said, well, I'll take it in that order. Start with the bad news. She said, Bubba said, well, it's bad. It's bad. We got in an accident. The boat capsized, and Joe Boy drowned. All right, well, that's really bad news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is, is that we were able to recover his body. We found him. That's good. And she said, well, if that's good, what's the gooder news? Well, when we pulled him up, there were four lobsters trying to eat him. And the even gooder news is that we're going to pull him up again at 4.30 and see how many more lobsters is trying to eat him. (laughs) See, sometimes the details of the story do not have to change for our understanding of that story to change. And that's exactly what happens in the life of Moses. In Exodus 3, Moses is going about his life that he has built. He's out shepherding. He's out kind of walking around caring for sheep. And he notices off in the distance that there is a, a bush and it's burning. Now, most of us, especially if you're a middle school boy, we get really excited about fire. All right? But this fire was different. Moses noticed that the bush was burning, but the bush itself was not being consumed. And the closer he got, the more intrigued he got until he heard the voice of the Lord. And this bush that is burning begins to talk to Moses. It says, Moses, you're standing on 
holy ground. Take off your shoes. Moses takes off his shoes. And when he realizes that it's the Lord, after years of, of neglecting his relationship with God, after years of running, our God chases Moses down in the middle of the desert. And God is going to have a face-to-face conversation with Moses. And in that conversation, God is going to rewrite and reshape how Moses thinks about his circumstances. He begins in Exodus 3.10 where he says this, Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Whoa. In that moment, it all comes together. I grew up in Pharaoh's house. I'm uniquely positioned by God to be the person that would go back and have the access and the authority to stand in front of Pharaoh and say, God said, let my people go. Is that how Moses responds? It's not. Because immediately in verse 11, Moses says this. Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I? to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Notice that those words are loaded because in those words, there is a a statement of fear. Who am I? I? Pharaoh tried to kill me because I killed an Egyptian. Who am I to go back to Pharaoh? And there are many of us that are held back from stepping into the life that God's called us, rising in the midst of the storm because of a fear that connects to something that we've done. And God's going to say, no, I want you to go. I'm with you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to take care of you. And still, in the next chapter, Exodus 4, Moses is going to protest. Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. Oh, you want me to go and you want me to speak and you want me to tell Pharaoh to let these people go. But, my God, I'm not very good with words. And I've never been. I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And see, oftentimes... We say, no, God, I can't rise because we're running from something in our past. But then oftentimes we say, no, God, I can't rise because of who I think I am. God, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not worthy enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not, I'm not gifted enough. God, I'm just not good enough to be this person that you say that I could be. And in that, for so many of us, we dismiss God's invitation as fiction because we think that something in our past has disqualified us or something inside of us will keep us from being who God's called us to be. See, I want you to understand today that if we're going to rise in the storm, we're going to have to do the rumble with our story. We're going to have to get in and fight with the story. We're going to have to fight to own it and then fight to take the next step and fight to rise. The first thing that I want you to see, this is in your notes under rumbling through our stories, is that rising requires work. Rising requires work. It is not easy. See, 
you right now, you are caught in the middle of your story. Every one of us is caught in the middle of our story right now in this moment. And I love what a mentor to me, Pastor Greg Surratt, who's the leader of our church planting organization, The Ark. He's the lead pastor at Seacoast Church, or at least he was uh, up until recently. He's transitioned his church to his oldest son, Josh. And, and many people who are watching from a distance have said, Greg Surratt is just writing the book on how to lead a church and how to lead a family. And he, in a dinner conversation with me one time, told me that, you know, people will come up to me and say, Greg, I, I just, you know, I envy your family. I wish I had your family. I wish that I could, uh, you know, with my kids, I had the relationship that I see that you have with your kids and the relationship that you have with your grandkids. And he said, man, he said, people don't get it. You're looking at my story towards the end of it. He goes, let me just rewind about 20 years, right? He goes, in one weekend between a Friday night and a Saturday morning, this is what happened to my family. I got a call at about midnight. Then my son Josh, who's now our lead pastor, who had not come home yet, was passed out drunk at a party. He goes, me and my little wife, who's very petite, had to go pick him up and drag him out of this party and take him to the ER. We were worried that he'd been poisoned and we didn't know what was going to happen. So very early the next morning, we got back to our house just to find out that our daughter wasn't home. And she had a boyfriend at the time. He said, I'm just going to be honest. I hated him. <laughs> he didn't respect me. He didn't respect Jesus. And I knew he wasn't a good guy. He goes, so she showed up at about 10. And I'm going to be honest with you. He said, I greeted him with the shotgun that was loaded, had the safety off, and it was pointed at him. He goes, everybody says they want my family now, but they don't want that family there. See, we're all trapped in what I like to call the messy middle of our story. But here's something, if you're taking notes, I'd write this down. Our message comes out of the messy middle of our story. Our message comes out of the messy middle of our story. You've never watched a movie where in the middle of it, the hero wasn't struggling with who he was going to be. And it's in the middle, that struggle, that forges their character and who they're going to be at the end. You're in the middle of your story. So, number two, don't define your story while you're in the middle of it. Don't define your story while you're in the middle of it. You're not at the end of your story. So stop trying to judge yourself and compare yourself to people who are at the end of their stories. Stop trying to compare yourself to people who have decades on you. You're in the middle of it. And the middle, the middle's messy. The middle is where we find ourselves face down in the mud, having to make the decision, will we run or will we rise? And I want you to see today, number three, the storms we face can become the greatest parts of our story. 
the storms that we face in life have the potential to become the greatest parts of our story. Today, some of us are like Moses. When the storm came, we ran from it. But I want you to know that you have a loving and gracious God who will not let you run, who's not going to lend himself to you running away from his purposes in your life. As a matter of fact, if you think about what we're going to celebrate, I mentioned it just a few minutes ago in just a couple weeks, the story of Easter is all about overcoming the middle. See, a lot of us as Christians, we live our lives on Friday. We live our lives on Friday without the hope of Sunday morning. Knowing that truthfully we must, as Galatians says, be crucified with Christ. That's that's the core and the tenet of what happens in our lives when we give ourselves to Jesus. We can be crucified. We can experience the, the death of our flesh and our sinfulness. But far too many of us stop there, not realizing that there's an end to the story that comes just days later where Jesus is resurrected and given new life. It's my prayer that as you start to rumble with the story that God is writing through you, that you'll start to own it. You'll stop to make excuses. And you'll make that decision that's going to be pivotal for you to rise in the middle of the storm. Let's pray. God, we thank you today that you are a gracious and loving God that you have chased us and pursued us and followed us. And there's some of us in here today, God, that we've had experiences with you, experiences with church, and we've written a half story in our minds about who you are and how church can be. And we've said that you are not good. The church itself is not a life-giving thing. And that because of that, God, we've even ran from intimacy with you. And today, God, it's my prayer. God, as we lean into the discomfort of being face down in the mud, that we will own the story that our lives are telling and that you, through your grace and mercy, will give us the strength to stop telling lives about ourselves, to stop believing lives about ourselves, to stop believing lies about our situation, to stop believing lies about our relationships, to stop believing lies about the people who are in our lives who care about us and love us, to stop believing the lies and to let you reshape our understanding of our stories through truth. Today, God, For many of us, that means that we have to stop running and turn to you. Stop trusting other things and start fully relying on you. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let me ask you if that's you today.
Do you need to stop running from God, stop trusting other things, and put your trust and faith completely in him? If that's you, raise your hand right now. Who else? Awesome. A lot of hands just went up. Now I'm going to ask a story and a question. I want you to be honest about where you are today. Have you been telling a story about yourself or about a situation in your life that you know is not true and you want God to reshape it? If that's you, raise your hand right now. If that's you, raise your hand. Awesome. So God, today, we just come before you. Many of us, having made that decision just a moment ago to say, we're tired of running. We want to give our lives completely to you. Many of us saying, God, I've been believing a lie. I've been letting the, the enemy of my soul connect the dots instead of leaning into your truth and asking you to finish the story for me. God, today, I just want for all of us to let your truth and your wisdom reshape the stories that we're living. God, lead us and guide us for your glory and for your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.